Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. It's been a week or two since we have been live with you on a Tuesday evening, so it is good to have you listening again. I'm Nathan Owens, and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening to the program this afternoon. We're going to start out with a couple of questions that have come in from listeners since the last time we were live in the studio. This message says, Good afternoon, uh, Pastor Murphy. I have a question for tonight's program from Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. And I'm going to read those, and then we'll get to the question. Matthew 7, 21 to 23 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And the question is, what I seem to understand is that someone can do miracles and cast out devils in Jesus' name without accepting Jesus as their Savior. But I would like to know, if so, if people who don't know that the people are false and they follow these false prophets, can someone get saved or be drawn to Christ by these miracles? Well, look, it's very, very clear in that passage that um, you have a lot of people who are fakes and frauds and um, they go about performing different miracles. We we don't fully understand how a person who is not a, a true believer and a person who is not fully converted, um, we don't know the mechanics of how he still is able to perform these type of miracles. But it's clearly that God honors his word and God honors the name of Christ. And uh, for the uh, salvation of another person or for the help of another person, uh, God seemed to bypass the fact that this person is not truly uh, a safe person, not a truly believer, and honors the name of Christ as used for healing. Uh, so clearly, uh, the Bible indicates from that passage that these things could happen. Now, if the person who has been healed or the person who comes into contact with these false teachers, um, if they are following Christ, they can be converted. Um, because, again, God honors his word. If they're following the man uh, who's an unbeliever, they'll be led down the wrong track. 
So it's possible for a person who is not a, a true Christian to be uh, preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, and God honors his word, and God honors uh, the conversion that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And if a person believes in Christ and puts their faith and trust in Christ, uh, even though that person who is not a believer is teaching how to be saved, that person can be saved. But if they're following the man, that's a different issue. And that's where you've got this personality cult. That you always have to follow Scripture and uh, make sure that you're not following a, a man for the sake of, of, of um, just following a leader. You have to make the Scriptures more important than personalities. And that's where the, the, um, the clash would come in. But it, it's highly possible. But based on the fact that the person is putting their faith in the Christ the person reveals or the gospel the person reveals, as opposed to the individual and putting your confidence in him. And to a great extent, a lot of people's faith are in the personality. And that's what Paul deals with in the book of Corinthians, uh, where you had this personality uh, cult, um, one calling himself Peter, one calling them Petrine followers, and one calling Apollos and Pauline followers, and some people saying that I'm a follower of Christ. And Paul uh, clearly... Uh, shows his disdain for that kind of an attitude and points out that really, in truth and fact, it all is about Christ and Christ alone. I don't know if that answers the question satisfactory, but I hope it does. Pastor, how would you respond if a person says the reason that these individuals are not being accepted into heaven Mm -hmm. is because a person can lose their salvation. Well, if a person is saved, uh, Christ made it very clear that no man is able to pluck people out of their hand. And also the book of Hebrews said that we believe uh, to the eternal saving of the soul. Uh, and the word justification, uh, if you know what it means in, in legal terms, is a forensic term that is used to describe when a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, that God himself declares that person not guilty. is the judge of the universe acquitting the sinner who puts their faith and trust in Christ of all sin, present, past, and future. And that gives him an eternal status. The other thing is, when you're taken out of uh, old Adam and put in Christ, you, you can't be removed. I mean, you're either in Christ or in Adam. So once you're out of, out of Adam and put in Christ, it's impossible now to be put back in Adam. It's a miracle of conversion, uh, and it's eternal salvation that Christ offers. He says, and no man is able to pluck down my hand. And then he says, they shall never perish, no never perish. Those are the words of Christ alone. So we do believe in eternal security. The important thing is to make sure the person is genuinely, authentically saved. But once you're genuinely, authentically saved, you have uh, eternal life in Christ Jesus. For the listener who has listened for many years to radio, maybe they've just tuned into the Lighthouse for the first time. Pastor, you reference being genuinely saved. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Does that mean I have to be baptized in a certain uh, church? No. To be saved is to put your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. Christ died on the cross for our sins, and it's through putting our faith and trust in that uh, finished work of Christ that we are saved. Such things as baptism and church membership and confirmation, all of that comes after a person has been saved. And so those are things that follow salvation. But uh, to be saved, it's a matter of repenting of your sins and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Our next question comes from Antigua. It says, God was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When Jesus was talking to his Father, was he talking to the Word? Well, that is one of the most confusing statements I've ever read, to be very honest with you. I think that the phrasing of it is is, is not right. Uh, It says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. Uh, what it is basically saying that uh, in eternity, before this whole world began, uh, Christ the Word was with God, the Father. And the question is now, and then it says, and the Word was God. In the first sentence, um, in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word there is, uh, it has a definite article, uh, and it has is the God, basically. That's what it is. It is identifying the separate persons in the Trinity, which is God the Father. When it says, and the Word was God, uh, it's not, it doesn't have the definite article. You know, it's what you call an, an arthur's nung because it's not a predicate nominative. And what it's really saying is that the Word was deity. He's of the same essence and, and substance of the Father. That's what it is saying. It's not saying that the Word is the Father. And that's where the Jehovah's Witness, by the way, totally confuse uh, the Scriptures. Uh, they just don't understand the distinction between having the anarthus uh, nung, uh, God without the article, a definite article and having the noun with a definite article one has to do with identity and one stresses nature so it's really saying that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God the Father and the word was God and the word was the same essence or deity as, as the Father is that's what it's saying so it's not a matter of identity one, the word is not the Father the word is of the same nature and the same essence and the same substance of the Father you could put it this way in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was deity or the word was divine that's what it really sh- sh- could could put it in. But uh, where this phrase, there's nothing really wrong with it. It's just that if you don't know the Greek language and you don't understand the use of the definite article in an anarthus nung, you'll always end up in confusion. That is why I, I, I say very often that a lot of the cults that we are faced with today um, are a result of people who only knew English, only were exposed to the English Bible. And a lot of these things could have been cleared up if they only just knew the Hebrew and the, and the Greek language. But um, and, th- and that is where we are today because of a lot of these people who really never really understood uh, the grammar of the Bible. And, and it's created all this mess that we find ourselves in. Thank you to the individuals who sent in those questions. Do you have a question that you would like answered? Maybe it's something that you have wondered for years, decades. Maybe it's something that someone asked you today at work, and you just aren't quite sure how to comprehensively answer it from the Bible. We would be glad to answer your question. You can call and be put live on the air, 1-268-462-7420. You don't want to speak on the air? That's not a problem at all. We would love for you to WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. If you are a little hesitant about having your question be traced back to you, be traced back to your village, be traced back to even your island or your part of the world. Just put something in the comment or in your question about anonymous or don't want to be mentioned the the country you're from. That's not a problem at all. We will keep it completely anonymous and we would be glad to answer your question. Because if it's a question that you have, I can almost guarantee that someone else has it. Probably multiple people have it. And it would be good for all of us to hear how to answer it from a biblical approach so that when we are asked it in future conversation, we can answer it appropriately. After all, the Bible does tell us to be prepared and be ready to give an answer to those who ask questions of us. Pastor, I know I've asked you this many times before, but do you really 
in your heart believes that the Bible has all the answers that I need to live. Well, I, I not only believe that, but I have a biblical reference that would confirm that. But Peter said that God has given to us all that pertain to life and godliness. So anything that has to do with this life to make it successful and to pursuit of godliness, uh, the Bible says that it's, it's, it's there. God has given it to us. So the problem with, with us human beings is, is, is trying to go outside Scripture to find answers. With fallen man is trying to give us answers to questions that the Bible provides answers for. And also, a lot of the biblical answers that are given in Scripture uh, go against the grain of human thinking and human what, what humans want to do because it's always curtailing the fleshly nature of humanity. And as a result of that, there's a re- revulsion in man uh, to just live within the confines of Scripture. And I think that's where the dilemma lies. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 744. There's still plenty of time for you to encourage others to tune into That's Truth and to send in your questions. While we await your questions, we are going to delve back into a topic that we have discussed for the past few episodes and see if we can wrap it up. And that's the topic of disciplining children, corporal punishment. Pastor... Just an overview question before we jump into specifics. Why do you think it is that children fight against authority or challenge authority? Well, I, I think, quite frankly, that children um, respect strength and respect courage. And uh, when that strength and courage is combined with love, you have the ideal situation for kids. That's why children love heroes. Uh, they like Batman. They like Superman. They, they love any person that seems to be very strong. And that, that's a given. So they always want to make sure that the leaders and the people who are responsible for them, basically, that they have courage and strength. And uh, what they want to know really is to find out how tough these leaders are. And they're always challenging uh, the person who's in charge. As a matter of fact, this is a entire um, human trait, uh, this tendency that we have in us uh, where we have this willful defiance. So it's a ten- tendency towards um, self-will, and we have, to, we have a tendency to challenge authority. That's where also children like that. And I would say to any parent, um, when your, chal- your child challenges your authority, you need to accept that challenge and deal with it um, resolutely. Other than that, you're going to lose uh, their respect, and they will not consider you to be worthy of their alliance, and therefore they can become disloyal to you. The ultimate paradox about uh, children is that, really, in truth and fact, they want their parents to lead them, but they want to feel that mom and dad are worthy of that right to lead. And that's why they're always pushing the boundaries of parents. And parents uh, don't seem to understand that. They want parents to take a stand on matters. And where they see weakness, they'll keep exploiting that again and again. Do you think that there's a legitimate answer for why children are so different? Well, um, the truth of the matter is that all of us uh, know that there are children in a home, and you can hardly believe they came out of the same womb. Um, we all know that. But if you look at a bell curve of how of uh, children, basically, at the end, one end, you'll see that uh, you have children that are very, very compliant. Then you have this massive curve of people. At the other extreme, you've got a few people, uh, children who are um, very, very defiant. And then in the curve, most people fall somewhere in between. Uh, but that is the nature of the beast. And what I would like to say that every child is born with an inborn temperament, 
even before the child beca- the parent begins to work on the child the child already has uh, their own personality as it were and uh, that inborn personality the child has um, the parent now has to mold that and shape that now why these personalities different there's no explanation for that just that they're born that way um, a study was done by Chess Th- uh, Thomas and Birch and they revealed that there were nine kinds of behavior where babies differed and they did uh, they just they, they found out that babies differed on the level of activity same age but different levels of activity they also differ in levels of responsiveness to, to um, stimulus and uh, also distractibility. Some of them would be easily distracted, others would focus. And then moodiness. So here are babies, and you can make these nine different distinctions even at that age. <coughs> and it's part of the <coughs> makeup of the individual. So I think that basically children are different, and parents ought to know if a child is compliant or a child is defiant or somewhere in between. And when you have a child that is especially um, self-willed and strong-willed, you have to try to deal with him in discipline at a very early age. You can't wait until he's 12 or 13 then to put down the brakes on his life. And I think that is one of the grievous mistakes that uh, parents make all the time. They're hoping that somehow as he grows, he'll change, he'll get better. But if you don't put restraints on him and deal with him or deal with her, uh, you will find that the situation worsens. I don't know if there is a straightforward answer for this question or not, but you've done a lot more reading than I have. So I'm curious, do you think that personality is genetically innate in us because our parents had that personality, or it's that as we grow up, we model what we see? No, I think we all have a, a inborn uh, temperament, and a, 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 a natural personality that we are born with and I think that's a sometimes you can see the child has more of the mother sometimes you can see they have more of the father sometimes you can see it's both in the child I don't know if you ever noticed that but there's certain qualities you can say yeah. ah, he's like his mother or he's like his father so I think it's a combination of the parent's personality that is somehow uh, meshed in the in the child so I think that when the child is born, he, al- he already has a, a certain type of personality that has now to be honed and developed and, and shaped, and et cetera, et cetera. Pastor, a WhatsApp question that has come from St. Martin. Good night, Pastor. Does your church return tithes 10%? Does it return? Return tithes. I'm not sure what you mean by return. What does it mean by that? Maybe return them to the Lord, uh, give them to the church. I, I don't know. Well, the tithe and offering that's given to the church is given to the church. Uh, so I'm not too sure. I know that there are churches, for example, um, that um, I'm not too sure if it's done. I know it's done in the U.S., for example, that you can give to a church and then you can claim it on your income tax. I know that you can do cert- make certain gifts. I know of one church, um, there are some churches that give you the record of your tithe you you give so much a month to the church, then they give you a record, and then you can use that when you're doing your income tax, et cetera, et cetera. I am not too sure that that is actually applicable to the Caribbean. I've never heard of any Caribbean government uh, that generous that the uh, the deductions could be made for the gifts towards the church. So I'm not too sure what it mean, what the person is saying by return types. I really don't know what that means. So maybe if they can just maybe word it some other way and explain it, um, I could give a better answer. But... Um, I'm not aware of that expression. 
Thank you for that question. And again, feel free to send in some follow-up information, and we'd be glad to answer it in greater detail. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.51 on this Tuesday evening. If you are listening to the Saturday rebroadcast on Saturday afternoon, welcome. We're glad that you're listening, and we would love for you to listen next Tuesday starting at 7.30 p.m. until 9 p.m. Pastor, you referenced in your answer to the last question about some children are strong-willed. What advice do you have to the parent who is listening and says, Pastor, I am really struggling with how to deal with this strong-willed child? Yeah, let me make a few suggestions. By the way, these suggestions are coming directly from um, one book that I've read, um, well, two books, The Temper Tantrum Trial and then also The Self-Willed Child and The Strong-Willed Child by James Dobson. And he also wrote the book, um, Dare to Discipline. Um, one thing that is uh, recommended is, is uh, try to uh, acknowledge the fact that you have this sense of guilt and anxiety and you've got this kind of frustration and fatigue that comes from dealing with an all-out war with a self-willed child. There's nothing to deny that you sometimes feel guilty about and anxious about it. It's frustrating and fatigue. Accept the fact that this is a struggle that not only you, but any person and any mom, any dad that has a a strong-willed child will go through the same challenges that you have. So don't feel that you are somehow um, unique in this matter or somehow you're overburdened in this matter that others are faced with the same thing. So if you feel anxiety, you feel a little bit guilty, the child is the way they are, uh, understand that other parents feel the same way. Uh, the other thing is don't blame yourself for the tension that arises between you and this strong-willed child. It's the same tension that every single parent that has a strong-willed child faces, that you are not, in many cases, responsible. You're doing your best, and uh, your best doesn't seem to be um, successful. So, But just don't blame yourself. Uh, number two is don't, don't um, be intimidated by parents uh, who complain that um, you don't know how to bring up children, etc., uh, etc., et and uh, you know you don't know how to deal with difficult children, and they're able to handle their children much better than you. Um, don't feel intimidated by parents who make those kind of silly statements. They don't have your child. They don't understand the struggles that you have. And don't carry an unnecessary burden feeling that they're handling the children better than you handling. Let them try to handle your child and see a different situation altogether. The children are different. And, uh, you know, just ignore those kind of things that uh, if you'd raise your child uh, in the right way, you wouldn't have this kind of awful problems. Uh, those kind of statements really only add to your burden. Just completely ignore them. Uh, the other thing is uh, take courage in the fact that the strong-willed child can be difficult to control even uh, when his parents handle him with the greatest skill and dedication. Uh, it may take several years to bring him around to the point where he's cooperating with your family. So, uh, again, you're dealing with a very, very difficult situation, uh, but eventually uh, try to work on it. Don't try to complete this transformation from a uh, defiant child to a compliant child. I believe it's going to happen overnight. It's going to take a long, long time to get there, and especially if you did not um, discipline the child very early when you sensed that he was very strong-willed. And now you went through age two, three, and four, and five, and you really didn't do much of firm discipline. Now he's getting out of the hand, and you now begin to come down firm on him, and you're having a real, real struggle. Just understand that failure at the beginning is now producing these harder uh, results in the long term. But don't panic. 
you can still bring him back in line. Just be consistent and courageous and uh, meet the challenges that he will pose to you. But uh, it's not going to happen overnight. And also, t- treat your son with ch- uh, child with sincere love and dignity, but require him to follow your leadership. Sorry. Was that an accidental slip that the son was going to be the difficult child? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for, for most people, they'll tell you that uh, ch- uh, men are the most difficult children. Mm-hmm. Girls become difficult when they get into teens and get into romance and stuff like that. But generally speaking, you'll find that girls are far more compliant than guys are. Guys are the tough ones that you really have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And most parents will tell you that. that uh, It's only when you ch- ch- get teenage girls begin to, uh, guys want to date them and they want to get that's when you begin to have the problem. But generally speaking, they're the more compliant ones at a very early age. And then the other thing I would say to those persons is choose carefully the matter which are uh, worthy of confrontation. And uh, so just be very selective. You, you, you know, de- decide which battles are worth fighting over. But once you decide that this battle is worth fighting over, uh, make sure that you win it decisively. Once you get into the battle, win it decisively. But uh, don't let every little matter become a big matter now because that, more, that, that leads to more frustration in the child. And then uh, re- reward positive, cooperative gestures of the child uh, by offering him attention and affection, love and uh, verbal praise, and sometimes material rewards when he really tries to be compliant with you. Those are about eight or nine things, basically, that I, I just offered you there that I think would prove very helpful in dealing with this uh, strong-willed child. I know that was a lot of information, but if you listen either to the rebroadcast on Saturday afternoon, you can hear that information again and write it down, or even better yet, later this week, you can listen to the podcast of this program, and it has been a few weeks since I shared with you about the podcast. You can go to Google, just type in That's Truth podcast and then there's multiple providers out there uh, Google Podcasts Apple Podcast uh, Anchor and you choose your best your preferred provider and click on the latest episode another way you can go to it if you don't want to go through Google is just go to our website www.radiolighthouse.org Scroll down to the second picture that you see, which is a large microphone, and right in the center, there is a circle that says podcast. Click on that, and then you will see a link for uh, the archive for That's Truth podcast, and there are many, many episodes, and they're titled by different topics, so if you are struggling or you are trying to counsel or encourage someone who's in struggling in a particular area. There are areas from pornography to reconciling marriage to uh, disciplining children, as we're talking about tonight, to cults. I'm trying to think of some of the other topics that we've discussed, but there are a lot of them out there, well over 100. Pastor, previously, this far, we have been talking mostly about preteens, uh, younger children and disciplining. You talked about the importance of disciplining them, especially in those early years. But what advice or recommendations do you have for parents who are parenting a teenager who just seems to be constantly defying their request, defying their authority, and pushing the boundaries? My uh, recommendation would be an approach that, um, let me just make these suggestions. The first thing I would say is that I think the the parents should come together and discuss and evaluate the situation. Um, 
I think that is vitally important. It can't be that the husband wants certain changes and the wife wants certain changes, but the, the two never meet. I think the best thing to do is to let's sit down and talk about this situation with this child. We've got to do something about it, and we need to work on this uh, concertedly so that we can really be on the same sheet when it comes to dealing with the child. I think that's the first thing that needs to be done. They have to be on the same wavelength, dealing with the, uh, looking at the issue from uh, the same perspective. So you've discussed the situation, you evaluated what the thing are. The other thing is, out of this meeting between the, the, the parents, I think you've got to agree on what mistakes we've made in the past in dealing with the child and what areas of attention we need to give now. Uh, and I think you need to identify that. Uh, maybe you were, the father was uh, too absent, maybe he didn't um, follow up on discipline, uh, maybe that the child was given too much freedom and too much liberty and now you're trying to pull in the ropes and the child is rebelling. Just just face where you think you've gone wrong in this whole matter, how you dealt with the child in terms of discipline, etc., etc. And then uh, decide then, okay, now what are the areas that we need to concentrate on as a husband and wife, as a partners in, in dealing with the child? The other thing is that after that, they should uh, mutually agree on the types of behavior that they agree is unacceptable and has to change. Okay, I think that is vitally important. Where do we think we need changes in this child's life? After we've done that, uh, I would sit down together as well and decide, okay, if these are the things that we want change in our child, whatever it is, let's decide on what are the penalties and the rewards uh, for this change that we want agree on those kind of things. Uh, what are we going to do if this happens, etc., etc. I would suggest that when you're dealing with a, a teenager that the corporal punishment should not be the first um, thing you go to. As a matter of fact, I've insisted uh, many times that when a child reaches 13, 12, 13, they really should need uh, the belt. And by then they should have been trained and disciplined, etc., etc. But when you're dealing with a teenager now, um, you've got to look at different forms of dealing with him in terms of discipline. I am going to suggest to you that some things that you can put in place that can be means of controlling him and getting him to fall in line. One, one of the things that people do is a, a, have an allowance. He's at a certain age now. You, you're teaching about money, how to count money, how to save money, how to invest money, how to give money. Because if you give him an allowance, make sure that every month he gives a little tithe out of that to the church, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, help him to know, you know, keep, keep, you know, keep a check on it. He's actually saving it, not just uh, spending it. So I think uh, one of the ways you can do that is, is give an allowance. That is a, a way of controlling him, that if his behavior doesn't fall in line with what mom and dad wants, you can... You can forfeit that allowance, or you can you can tax that allowance, reduce it, whatever it is. Uh, so that is that is a, a thing you can use. The other thing is that you can look at what he really loves. I asked a parent that recently, two parents. I said, "What does this child really, really appreciate? What do they really, really love? If there's one thing in this world they really want, I said that's the tool that you can use to get that child fall in line because." If the child is not following your rules and your regulations, challenging and being defiant, you know exactly what he really loves. Maybe he, the tablet, he adores that. Maybe this is cell phone. Maybe it's the use of the computer. Uh, maybe if he's big enough and he has a, his license, this use of the family car on weekends or, or something like that. But find out that you you know you know your child well enough to know that if this one thing is taken away from him, it would upset him and, and you know he can't do without this. Again, that is something you can use uh, to bring him in line 
uh, to get them to conform to your standards and to deal with the issues that you and your husband feel about. The other thing you can do is, is uh, if he is defiant and he doesn't cooperate, add additional responsibilities that you've given to him. What's his responsibility at home? I hope he has something to do. Uh, if it is to clean the house, clean the yard, um, I, I don't exactly want you, but I would hope that if he's living at home, he has some responsibility. Maybe wash the wares, or she had to wash the wares, maybe to do his own clothing, uh, you know, whatever his responsibility is, and he's not cooperating, add additional responsibilities to him. Maybe if you've got three at home, one takes up the garbage, one does the yard, one one. Now, make him do for that week or for two weeks both things, et cetera, et cetera. So he's now penalized because he's not cooperating. The other thing that you can do is to try to reduce the social interaction between himself and his friends and his peers. Teenagers love to be with each other. And that may be something that as a result of not falling in line and uh, being rude or disrespectful or defiant, uh, you wouldn't be able to go over by Johnny or, or Susie or whatever the position is. So you're actually robbing them of social time. And uh, believe you me, some some teenagers would rather get licks than not be able to go by their friends and play their games, electronic games, whatever it is. But this is a tool that you can use as a parent. Um, loss of privilege, um, whatever privileges that you have allowed him that are, no, are normal. Um, um, his friends coming over, you're not going to allow his friends to come over in the weekend, uh, and that big plan, whatever it is. Uh, items of value that he thinks is important, maybe he likes designer shoes or designer's thing, uh, you know, uh, you might, or some sports item he wants. Very, again, that is a tool that you can use for him. And then you can also restrict his curfew. You allow him to be out, say, 9 o'clock. Now you're telling me got to be in by 8 o'clock. That cuts off all his time. Um, so that may be. What I'm saying to you is as a parent, you've got to know your child. You've got to understand as a teenager what really is valued by him. And you can use these things that he value as a means to try to control him and to bring him in line with what mom and dad wants uh, so that he either forfeits these things, etc. The other thing is that uh, find out... Um, what he wants for like Christmas or he wants for his birthday, uh, a prize or whatever it is, and conditions that gift, condition that gift on change of behavior, change of attitude. Uh, and what you can do, by the way, some parents do, and Dr. Uh, Dobson recommends this, you come up with a point system uh, where you, you, you kind of give each thing you want to change in the child a value and then come up with accumulation at the end of three months, if it's his birthday and three months on Christmas, so that if he falls in line and he comes up to this kind of a score, uh, he's rewarded. If he doesn't, he doesn't get the reward. But one thing I would like to say this, once you have planned with him and he's agreed to it, if he doesn't meet the demands and the conditions, he should not get the reward. But if he does struggle and he does, the greatest thing you can do is not to give him the reward. Uh, and, and by the way, all of our lives is about rewards. We mm. work. Why do we work? Because we like working. Mm. We need, <laughs> need the money. We need the money. We need rewards. Mm. E- even education. I mean, you look at the fact that it's going to lead to a better job, whatever it is. Uh, and, and don't forget that even, even as believers, our work is going to be rewarded. There's nothing wrong with rewards and reinforcing good behavior by giving rewards. The Lord promised to bless those that obey Him. That's reinforcement, okay? So I just think that we just need to be wiser when we're dealing with um, teenagers, and we don't want to 
when we they really feel that we the, that we take advantage of them when we beat them with a belt at that age to be honest with you they, they, they're very very rebellious against that and we I'm not saying you should never ever use the rod with a teenager don't ever uh, think I'm saying that but you shouldn't have to there have to be other ways that you can use uh, in dealing with that person the other thing I would say very quickly after you've decided on this thing is to meet with the child sit down with the child and I would say to the child, listen, we've allowed you to get away with a lot of things before, but um, my, uh, your dad and I have sat down and we've looked at this thing very carefully, and we have decided that certain changes have to, to be made, and these are the changes we want to see in your life, and uh, these are the rewards and these are the punishments as a result. I would even go so far as to say to the person, the young person, to, to give his input on, on what mom and dad wants. Uh, I mean, I don't think that it'd be a very unusual child if they can see the value of why the parents are doing something to be not agree with it. They might not agree with the penalty. And you might ask them, what penalty do you think a person who does this deserves? And then if it is harsher than yours, okay, let's put that one in, right? <laughs> but I think that it's good to sit down with him and admit the fact that the way you've been dealing with it before, it hasn't worked. You admit that you've failed in dealing with it before, but now you want these changes, and you mutually agree that these are the changes we want, and we've come up with rewards and punishment if uh, you don't conform to this matter, and then get his input. I think once you do that with a child and the context of love and affection, uh, I not that the child will not have those moments of rebellion, but I think if you're consistent and there are penalties and there are consequences for behavior, I think eventually you can turn the child around. But the greatest mistake you can make is to come up with a system like this and then you don't follow through on it. And you, you do it for a week and then you, you, you forget to do it the next week. So whatever, you've got to be consistent. And once he sees you're consistent, I think it will be begin to bring about change. Pastor, a follow-up to the question about ties. The listener says, I meant to... I meant pay tithes to the church monthly, as is mentioned in the Bible, Malachi 3.10. To return tithes is when a member takes out 10% of their monthly salary and gives to the Lord for his blessings and faithfulness. Yeah, our church, um, our church receives tithes and offerings, and uh, but we don't we don't know who gives we we, we who give uh, to the church. We normally it's an envelope, and in our envelope it has different ministries. For example, we have missions as well. If a person wants to uh, to give to missions, they'll have the envelope and they'll put the money, and then they'll they'll, they'll put a use a pen to put the, the the block that is there. They'll mark missions, or let's suppose there's a particular need that was mentioned in the church. Uh, somebody needs, we're dealing with one right now um, with um, something to do with shoes. Not going to go into detail about that, but again, we've learned that somebody needs that. It's not somebody who goes to a church, but that apparently is hindering them from, from being able to attend church, and we've decided to, to do that for them. Uh, again, um, there may be somebody in the church that will put, uh, saying this is for the person's sh- shoes. We don't, we don't tell people who the, person, who the person is. That's the important thing because these are very, very private matters. But it gives believers an opportunity if they want to give towards that project. But uh, we do receive tithes and offering, but we don't know who does it. Uh, it's just strictly a uh, personal matter. Uh, but it is put in an envelope and it's indicated on the envelope whether it's tithes, whether it's for missions, whether it's for Sunday school or whatever uh, program that we have. Anything else you'd like to mention in relation to corporal punishment, discipline in children? 
Look, I just I just think that it's a mistake that, uh, to to suggest that it should not be used. Um, I don't think those people that really really um, trying to to make this uh, um, a reality uh, understand that they're taking away a vital tool from the parents were this thing to be instituted. And I do feel that in schools, I do feel that there are certain offences as well that need to be clearly marked out what a child is disciplined for. And uh, I, in our school, for example, if there's corporal punishment, uh, at least two people have to be there. Uh, and, and, and normally the principal will do that. If a teacher is going to have to do it, somebody else has to be there. And this is to protect the teacher and also to protect the student. So it, it is not done in, in, in anger. It's not done in malice. Uh, if the offence is serious, um, it would be done, but it is always done in the presence of somebody to make sure that nothing untoward happens in relation to uh, the actual form of discipline. And the parents are aware that corporal punishment yeah, is Oh, yeah. Every, every parent that is, uh, attends our school uh, is told when they're coming to be interviewed that we practice uh, corporal punishment but we make it very clear it's not it's not the you know it's not the it's not something you do regularly but if the child requires it it will be done the other thing is there's nothing wrong uh, in a parent uh, uh, the uh, principal calling an parent and asking the parent to do the corporal punishment uh, etc but some parents are so soft they just can't stand a child crying or being emotional and uh, therefore they delegate that to the school and I think it's a, as I said before, Nathan, I'm telling you this, if there was not corporal punishment in the school I went to, I'd be a dummy today. I only learned because I knew if I didn't learn, I would get licks. There's no other reason I ever learned. Some people are like me. There's some people who are born in a book, but I wasn't born in a book. So, <laughs> so I know the people like myself who need it. Uh, I think if you rob them of it, uh, it can actually be detrimental to the uh, academic welfare in the future. And that's why I think it's a mistake to just ban it um, outright uh, without allowing it for certain situations. I was just thinking, man, if I was in school and the principal called my father to have him come to school to mm -hmm. give me corporal punishment, wow, that'd be embarrassing. <laughs> Oh man, but it it's it's just needed. It's needed. Yep. You got some, I suppose. Oh, I did. I, okay. I am who I am because <laughs> of the fact that I was disciplined, yeah. and I'm thankful for it. Yeah. I, I am too. To be very honest with you, I'm very very glad my mom put some lashes in me, and my dad put some lashes in me. There were times I tried to go put an extra pair of pants on or something to <laughs> to soften it, but it didn't usually end up working out in my advantage. <sighs> What a great way to uh, finish out the topic of corporal punishment. The time on this Tuesday evening is 8.13. We are halfway through this episode of That's Truth. Do you have a question that you would like help answering? Maybe it's about life. Maybe it's about the Bible. We would love for you to call and be put live on the air. one 7420 While you're trying to decide whether you want to call or send in your question, let me say, when you send in your question, it's a safe space. We're not here to belittle you, embarrass you, argue with you. State what the Bible says and answer your question from a biblical worldview. Again, call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, you can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 
268-782-1454. Or you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, comment right there on your device while you listen to the program, watch behind the scenes. You can comment your questions or your concerns. Pastor, a question that just came to me in relation to the tithes. Is it a sin for a church to not encourage their people to tithe? Is that a clear directive in Scripture for the New Testament? I think that um, it's a dereliction of teaching stewardship responsibility if they don't encourage people to give uh, to the Lord's work. Uh, I would say to people, you know, um, if you're going to run a Sunday school, if you're going to run a missions um, missions, and you're going to have a missionary support, uh, you need you can't have missions without funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't send out if a church decides to send out a missionary. Uh, we haven't been able to send out an individual missionary as yet, but I would hope the day would come when we can send out a missionary on the field uh, and we can support that person. But I don't think it's possible to to, to fund uh, support missionaries, and we do that. Um, in many places in the world, including places like Siberia, to be very honest with you, uh, in the Caribbean, uh, even in America, we have a missionary that we support. Uh, so we support a lot. But I think it's important to that people learn to give. Fortunately for me, I have uh, came into a church t- about 20 years ago where the pastor, the previous pastor, had done a tremendous job in laying the foundation of people understanding stewardship, tithing, and supporting missions. And I have not found it up to this point necessary for me to really um, promote a extensive stewardship program. Uh, we might have to do that uh, sometime in the future because COVID and um, the lockdown and people losing jobs uh, has put a strain on our missions program. And uh, we might have to try to mobilize and encourage people again to get back to those missions. But uh, it might become necessary. But right now, um, to say it's a sin, I would say it's a dereliction of duty uh, not to emphasize the need for believers to give to the Lord's work and to support the Lord's work. Um, for example, we also support a Bible school in St. Vincent um, that we support every month. Um, we help support, we support the radio station as well here. Uh, um, and we support uh, two pastors' children in Cameroon they would not be able to go to the school they're going to unless we had supported them as a church. And because the pastor was not in a position to, to really, um, you know, handle the finances and that, so we, we support that. We also support an orphanage in Cameroon as well. So it, it's, um, it's needed, and I think that depending on the situation, a pastor should periodically bring the attention to church that we need to give to the Lord and, and uh, support the Lord's work. So I, I think it's a dereliction of duty if it's not done. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, good evening, Judy Panil. Hi, Mr. Williams. How are you doing, sir? Fine, thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thanks for calling. How can we help you? Yeah, Pastor Murphy, two yeah. short questions. Please. Yes, sir. Uh, the disciples that Jesus called, uh, before they may call disciples, what they may call before they may call disciples? Uh, well, it depends on them. I mean, that one of them we know was a fisherman. Two were fishermen. We know that one was a, a publican or a tax collector. Uh, but 
there's, I can't think of any name that they were called per se before they became disciples. Um, I, I, so, so, but, so it's after they, after they, after they were called by Christ. Yeah. That's, when, called that's when they became disciples. A disciple is a follower. And when Christ called uh, Peter and uh, John and his brother, uh, they became following after him, and they became his disciples. Uh, 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 so that's what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower of a, uh, a person who sits on this ministry, uh, on this mentorship. Well, so. that, is same, that, that is the same idea I have, too, because I was talking to one of my brothers in the church, and they were talking like, before you are Christian, you are a disciple. I tell him, no, it's after you. No, you can't. With Christ, you become a disciple. Yeah, you can't be a you can't be a, a disciple before you become a Christian. How is that possible? Very funny. Yeah, so you're yeah. right about that. He's 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 got the cart turned around. So you 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 got the right to just correct him gently. Yes. Yeah. And second question: When when Jesus tell you Paul tell you in that you a woman supposed to dress modestly in church and uh-huh. should not pray without I had covered. Uh-huh. Who was he talking to? Unsaved or a Christian? He's to believers. Uh, clearly talking to believers. Um, there's no question about that. I mean, Paul wrote his epistles not to unsaved people. He wrote the epistles to churches. And when he wrote to the Corinthian church, he wrote to the believers within the Corinthian church, explained to them when it came to worship, what was the proper form of um, covering and what proper form of dress. Their uh, modesty is something that is every 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 woman should practice. But by the way, not only in church, but even outside the church, a woman should be very very modest. A woman should not dress to draw attention to her body. Uh, if she does that, really into the fact she's creating lust and desire on a man's part. So she has to be very very careful what her intention is. I, I've said this very often in our church, and people might get offended, but I think the way that uh, people look at it today. The, the the young, I can't say all of them, but the vast majority of young girls today, whether in church or outside the church, would rather be called sexy than holy. Mm. They're all they're all they're so obsessed with outward beauty, outward shape, outward outward uh, you know, and uh, it's a gr- grievous mistake, grievous mistake. That's why I say that I've said this as well in our church uh, that the problem with us Christians is that we've created good Christians but not godly Christians. There's a difference between the two. Uh, our children uh, are good, but they're not godly. Uh, and what I mean by that, they don't have a passion for God. And they're more concerned about beauty and more concerned about hair and nails and uh, men about, um, you know, Nike shoes and this kind of stuff like that. Um, but, um, yeah, he's talking about Christians uh, in those passages. Because I'm talking to a brother again, and he tell me about one, the Bible tells about you're talking about the halots. I tell him no. Is one if Christian here talking to? Why tell me no? It's halot. They are and they are still coming in church. I said, but he couldn't be talking to halot when they they were Christian. Oh no. You're halot and you're Christian, you change. No. What I think he is probably saying, and this is where some people. I have a different view on on wearing a, um, a covering. I I do feel personally. This is my view. I do feel that a, a married woman's head should be covered in church. I feel that very strongly. I haven't pushed it in our church because when I got there. They, apparently they were taught differently and I didn't think it was something worth fighting over but I do feel that I can prove uh, from Corinthians that a woman's head should be covered as a matter of fact Paul said if her head is not covered let it be shaved and the argument that people use is that in those days women were shaving their head and coming to church well if her head is already shaved why, why then why, what would Paul say it didn't make any sense to me but I think what he's saying there there's an interpretation 
that the believers were coming to church with their head shaved, the women, and Paul is, is telling them, where, get back your hair, let your hair grow, basically. Uh, so that's where the guy probably got his interpretation from. So he think that we're dressing like harlots by having the hair shaved. But I, I can prove from Scripture that that doesn't make any sense in that interpretation. I do feel that uh, uh, um, the whole thing is that a woman should show respect for her husband and a symbol of his authority by having her head covered. But again, you know, this is not a major doctrine that is worth fighting over. Uh, when I was in uh, St. Lucia, I've known of churches that split over head covering. Wow. I mean, literally battles, real battles out of out of, of, of thing and uh, stuff like that. I, I would rather not split a church over an issue like that, even though I have very strong feelings about it. Uh, I have to bear in mind that people were taught a certain way before I came here. And my job is not to split the church. My job is to build up the church and edify the church and grow the church. Uh, so therefore, I have not made that an issue. But it doesn't mean that when I'm preaching from Corinthians, for example, that I would not teach what I believe is a proper interpretation. And then believers would then have to decide, well, you know, if the pastor can prove to me that this is the case, then they have to respond uh, to Scripture. That would be my approach to it. Uh, that the other other situation, of course, people believe that Christians shouldn't wear any kind of jewelry forever as well. I've known churches who split over that as well. But again, Paul is talking about extravagance. He's not talking about a woman can't wear a ring or can't wear a bangle. Uh, he's talking about the extravagant display of having five rings on your finger and 20 bang, bang, bangles, ten on one hand, ten on the other, and then you've got ten on, the, on your ankle on the other. That's what Paul is talking about, you know. You know, talking about just, just wearing a, a earring here. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this extravagant display of uh, wealth and vanity. Uh, but there are things, Brother Williams, that we will fight over because they are non-negotiable doctrines that are very important. There are other issues where I think there is uh, a possibility that we can live, even though we disagree on minor issues, it's not worth splitting the church or dividing the church. But it's true because when, when the Israel leave Egypt, when Aaron built the golden calf, everybody uh, had rings and earring and he said, yeah. give it up and they, so they are using it. Correct. Correct, correct. Anyway, thanks for the exhortation. Yes, sir. And uh, listen, brother, you know, you, you get into the Word, and when you've got an argument like that, you just use Scripture with the brother, do it in a nice way, basically, and um, sooner or later he'll begin to respect your judgment on these matters. Yeah, yeah, we are all talking individual talk. You have nothing to the argument with. Good, yeah. good, good, good rapping, then. Good rapping. Yeah, yeah. God bless you. And anyway, you take care. And you too, sir. Very safely. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much for the call, Brother Williams. Appreciate it, and have a safe evening there in Bendel's Antigua. Pastor, a WhatsApp question that has just come in. Good evening. Does it have to be 10% for the tithe, or can it be less or even more? There is scripture that says to not give out of obligation, but willingly. Well, I think it's a matter between the individual, but I really feel that the tithe should be the minimum. If under law, uh, the tithe was the gift, we're now under grace. If God is so much generous with us, I think that we should be more generous with Him. So I think the tithe should be the minimum, but uh, we, we collect what is called tithes and offerings. There are people who would give the tithe, but they want to give something else. But again, this is not an imposition uh, that we legalize it, that it has to be done. That's why we don't keep records of who uh, who give to the church or who give tithes. 
I don't, I don't think I need to know that information either, to be very honest with you. Uh, I just think it's a matter that's personal between you and God, and God loves a cheerful giver. And the word cheerful there is the word give hilariously, by the way, is the Greek language. So uh, if you give uh, grudgingly and you give of necessity, your blessings would be sh- short-filled. Uh, if you give generously and out of a free will, uh, God blesses you accordingly. So The series about cults, and for the next few weeks, we're going to discuss some additional cults or false religions, those that are maybe even claiming the name of Christianity, but are distorting Christianity, their false religions. We're going to start out this evening with the topic or the organization of Unity School of Christianity. It's headquartered in Missouri, and it's spreading not only throughout the eastern U.S. and into the Midwest, but also there are some churches here, even here in the Caribbean. I don't know about Antigua specifically, but there are some in the Caribbean. Pastor, could you give a brief history of the movement and maybe the essence of its purpose? Well, the... uh School of Unity, first of all, I, I became familiar with it when I was in Barbados. Uh, there was a couple that lived in the Bathsheba area uh, that um, would invite people to their home, and uh, they also gave out literature, that um, very prolific literature that they, they, they would publish. So I was familiar with Unity uh, in Barbados. I'm not too sure how many of these um, religious um, institutions are in the Caribbean, but I do know that there was one in Barbados. Um, Unity School of Christianity was founded in Kansas City, Missouri in 1889, and it was founded by a husband and wife couple uh, team, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore. Uh, Fillmore. Currently, the movement is uh, headquartered in, in Lee's Summit in Missouri, uh, the name Unity itself was adopted in 1891, and then it was incorporated and named uh, the Unity School of Christianity in 1914. Uh, it currently boasts about 1.5 million uh, followers, and I, um, since I've been in Antigua, I've seen a lot of advertising on cable television uh, for the Unity School. They do extensive work of advertising. As far as the gist of what the movement is all about, I think if I get the words from the horse's mouth himself, uh, Charles Fillmore, who was one of the founding persons along with his wife, this is how he sums up unity, and I want to quote him directly. He said, said, it's devoted uh, to the spiritualization of humanity from an independent standpoint. It's a religion which takes the best from all religions and combine them in, in, in basically teaching men. So you have an eclectic religion that is a combination of different strands of truth. And uh, the whole idea of spiritualizing humanity, I'm not too sure what he means by that, but I suppose he means by uh, propagating the, uh, the unity doctrine and teachings of what they really believe. But uh, that is in, in just an essence what it is. And it says an independent, um, uh, from an independent standpoint. So this is, this is he and his wife's view. 
of, of Christianity <coughs> and <coughs> their interpretation of Christianity, and that is why he talks about it being independent, is diverse from authentic biblical Christianity and his unique spin on his understanding of the Christian faith. <coughs> You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 kilohertz AM, 92.3 megahertz FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.31. We have just under 30 minutes left in this episode, and we would love for you to call in with your question, one 462 7420 or WhatsApp or text your question to 1268 782 1454. Pastor, I found it very interesting. You said it was the late 1800s that it was started. Isn't that right around the same time as maybe the Jehovah's Witness and the Seventh day Adventist? Yeah, I have said this, uh, I think, on a previous program. I really think that somebody needs to do some research. That all of these major cults, the Mormons, the JW, Theosophy, um, this one here as well, uh, all of them seem to have started around the same basic time period. And my curiosity would be what was happening at that particular time in history that caused the spawning of all these different religious groups. It'd be a fascinating, uh, I think, research if somebody can do it. But uh, it, it struck me that the uh, same thing you talked about around the same time, all of this is that they just sprung up basically, mushroomed at that particular period. So there must be some spiritual condition in that period of time that was uh, had people that were interested in religion in the whole, but were somehow losing interest in, in Christianity. So I, I agree with you. It's very, very, very fascinating. Pastor, we have a call from Antigua. Codrington, thank you very much for your call, and please go ahead quickly with your question for Pastor Murphy. Yeah, uh, what is the difference between burning in sin and then burning in um, um, the righteous sin when Jesus Christ um, acknowledged Jesus Christ as your Savior? Could, could you repeat that again? What's the difference between being born in sin and uh, the whole world became sin when um, Adam correct sin. Uh-huh. and then after this sin take over the whole world now and now when Jesus Christ comes into the world born of Mary um, you became to know Jesus Christ and then when you came to know Jesus Christ you're born again as a new man well um, first of all when we are born uh, naturally we inherit a sinful nature, just said, from Adam. Uh, when Adam sinned, he was the federal head of humanity, and we all sinned in Adam. So his sin nature was passed on to us. I think we all know that. That's why we all are sinners. When Christ was born, he had to be born both God and man, because to satisfy the righteousness of God, he had to be God himself. But also because man had sinned, he had to be able to die for man. So man had sinned, man has to die. And that's why Christ had to be born of a virgin. He could not be born having a human father and a human mother. Uh, he would then be a sinner, basically. And uh, that's why he was born. Now, the difference between the two of these things is that 
we were naturally born with a sinful nature. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He didn't mean that Bashi, his mom had committed sin and, and that's how he conceived. But he was basically saying that uh, when his mom, when he was born through his human mother, her sinful nature and that's, it was passed on to him. When a person is born into God's family, uh, it involves now something completely different. Uh, and what that involves is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins. And when a person repents of their sins and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God forgives him and pardons him. God, he's now reconciled to God. And God adopts into his family, become a child of God. The Bible calls that uh, adoption. And the Bible calls faith and trust in Christ uh, um, justification. We become justified, we become saved. So we are not naturally saved. Even though I might have a Christian mother, doesn't mean that uh, my mother was uh, a Christian before I was born, and I was born after. I am not naturally a Christian. A person becomes a Christian by putting their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and by repenting of their sins. And then God forgives and pardons, justifies him, adopts into his family, and uh, that person becomes saved and redeemed, and is destined for glorification. Does that help, sir? Let's be very, the, Cardinal, be very, very clear. Mary had nothing to do with making Christ righteous. Okay, Christ was God taking on human flesh. All Mary provided for him was his fleshly human nature. She had nothing to do with his godhood. Uh, she is not the mother of God. She's the mother of his humanity. You have to be very, very clear about that. Okay? If you don't ever understand that, you'll always end up where you're totally confused about what redemption is. So Mary has nothing to do with the matter that Christ was, uh, was righteous. Christ was God and God is holy. But he had to become a man so he can redeem man because man sinned. So he had to be both the God-man and God at the same In other words, he could take hold of the hand of God, as holy as God is. He can take hold of the hand of man that man had sinned and he was a sinless one and he can bring man and God together because he's sinless he paid the price for our sins so that God can now cancel our debt but Mary is just a human instrument that God used uh, that uh, bypassed the sinful nature of a father so that there was no father uh, no human father in connection with Christ so she was a human instrument and thank God she was available and ready to be used of God and we respect that. We honor that uh, as far as that is concerned. But uh, that is the extent of her part in this redemption. She has nothing to do with redemption. She can't help me. She can't help you. She's not the core redemptrix. There's no such thing as uh, the assumption of Mary that she was taken up to heaven and she never uh, was buried. And All of that is myth. She was not immaculate in the sense that she never sinned. All of that is myth. Mary said God is her Savior. Remember that. A, a Savior is a person who saves you from sin, and she herself uttered those words. Uh, so I think sometimes if we don't follow Scripture, we can end up where we are giving to a person deific um, qualities that really don't belong to that person. Let's take Scripture as Scripture is and understand that. I wish you, my brother, would uh, uh, would really have as much confidence in Christ as you seem to have in Mary. I think that that is where your problem lies. You need to look to Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. And I think if you do that and you put your confidence in Him as you put it in her, you'll be totally, completely redeemed 
and uh, you will experience the transform- transformative change that the Bible talks about. But I really want you to put that same confidence you have in Mary, transfer that to Christ, and believe in me, the door of heaven would open to you. Amen. Codrington, thank you very much for the call. Thank you for listening and continue to encourage others to listen to that truth also. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.38. Pastor, as we're talking about the Unity School of Christianity, and you mentioned the founder, Charles Fillmore, and I believe his wife, can you give us a little bit of background about the founders and maybe some of their belief system? Well, um, let's talk about uh, Myrtle Fillmore first, and then we'll talk about uh, her husband, Charles. But uh, Myrtle was raised a Methodist before she got off into this tangent dealing with the Unity School of Christianity. She was also a school teacher, and um, she is a person that, uh, because I think the nature of her teaching uh, came under the influence of what is called transcendental philosophy. Um, uh, uh, the two main proponents of this was Ralph Waldo Emerson and James Russell Lowell. These are two great American writers, and they pushed this thing called transcendental meditation, etc. Um, as a matter of fact, she was so much impressed with this transcendental thought that she named her two sons, one Waldo and one Lowell, uh, to honor these two men. So if you're going to understand the Unity School of Christianity, you have to appreciate the role that these transcendentalists played in helping to shape her thinking and her mindset um, about uh, her view of religion. Her husband, Charles, was a real estate salesman, and he dallied in spiritism. Spiritism is where you're trying to contact the dead and speak to the dead and be in contact with um, um, spirit beings in the uh, world of necromancy. These are This is something, of course, that God had forbidden. So you're dealing here with a person who is was a Methodist, uh, get into the transcendental uh, philosophy. You're dealing with a man who has dallied in spiritism. And these two people came together and... Uh, put certain strains of thought together to come up with their whole system of um, um, unity school of uh, Christianity. Uh, Let me just mention a few things here about the transcendental way of thinking and the philosophy so you understand what you will find certain teachings of hers are blended uh, with Christianity. For example, They believe, and they use a lot of mystical phraseology. Uh, They'll take the Bible and they will uh, distort the Bible and twist the Bible and and, uh, interpret it allegorically, not literally. Uh, The other thing is that they exalted the spiritual above the material and they believe that uh, man was self-sufficient in himself as an individual to handle his problems. Uh, now you'll find later when we study uh, unity that they believe that there is divinity in every man there is the Christ consciousness in every man but if you don't understand that part of that was gotten out of the transcendental uh, way of thinking you will never fully understand how she adopted these ideas into Christianity that's why I'm emphasizing that she came under this influence of transcendental philosophy and she blended it with Christianity and uh, fit it into her own mold the other thing that is important when you're dealing with um, 
Unity School of, of, of Christianity is to understand that uh, Mrs. Fillmore, when she moved from Kansas, when she moved from Kansas uh, uh, to, to Kansas, Missouri, when she moved to that city in 1884, she became a convert of Christian science uh, in okay. 1887. Uh, so that gives you an idea that a lot of her teachings also are quite similar to Christian science. So if you understand Christian science is what you might call uh, a kind of a new age type of uh, mind mind cult. Uh, the idea that the mind controls everything basically and that the mind could heal and that there's no reality such as ma of matter. Death doesn't exist, sickness doesn't exist, sin doesn't exist. This is what she took over from Christian science and carried over into unity because you'll find that the two of them are quite similar in his teaching. Um, according to, um, um, let me use um, why she said that she was converted from Methodism to Christian science. She said, uh, I am a child of God and therefore I do not inherit sickness. Again, that's the teaching that comes from uh, Mrs. Baker, who is the head of the uh, Christian science movement. She credits uh, Christian science with healing her from a variety of physical problems that she had. And uh, she later was able to convert her own husband as well to adopt uh, uh, Christian science as her religion. Uh, so you, you've got the transcendental philosophy, and now you've got the element of Christian. That's another strand that you'll find mixing with the with the Christian school of, of, of unity. Um, she eventually broke away from Christian Science because Christian Science says that matter is not real; uh, it was just an illusion. But she argued that matter was real. And therefore, that's where she moved away from Christian science. But she carried over a lot of the ideas of Christian science to her unique system. So she insisted, contrary to Christian science, so she, that's why she broke away from that. There was no discovery about what salvation is, about God, Christ. It was just simply that they could not agree on this matter of what is what really is matter really. In other words, can I touch this as a real thing or it's just an, an illusion? Christian science said that even though I can touch it, it's an illusion. So there's no death, there's no sickness, there's no pain. There's no sin, basically. That's what they believe. But uh, so that caused them to um, move away from um, Christian science. The third element that you'll find in the movement is this matter of, of spiritism. Remember I said that Charles Myrtle, the co-founder with his wife, he dilly-dallied into the spiritism world. And uh, the religion of spiritism has to do with contact and getting information from beings beyond the grave. It is completely condemned in the Bible that you should not inquire of the dead for the living. And God abominates any kind of spiritism, any kind of necromancy in the Old Testament. So here's a man forming a new religion and exactly going from something that God has condemned and abominated, and now he's bringing those elements into, into the... The, fifth, the fourth element that you'll find in, in this movement uh, is Hinduism. And when they had the Columba Exposition in Chicago in 1893, uh, the Fillmores uh, became attracted to yoga and, uh, and the philosophy of Hindu because at that time... There was a guy called Vindi Kananda that was promoting both yoga and uh, Hinduism. 
and she became and he became attracted to especially two things reincarnation and vegetarian diet so she carried over uh, reincarnation into her movement as well and the old idea of vegetarian into it it's a whole uh, eclectic uh, accumulation from different areas that she now combines with Christianity uh, etc as a matter of fact he so believed in uh, reincarnation that he thought he himself was a reincarnation of the Apostle Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds ludicrous, and it's something to laugh at, and I would laugh at as well. But that gives you an idea of... of, of uh, and then the last thing that was added to their uh, system of, of uh, Christianity uh, was what is called New Thought Belief. Uh, Unity itself was a member of the international New Thought movement and uh, this is a movement started by a guy called Phineas uh, Quimby. Uh, and he is the one that um, thought about the power of mind using hypnosis. And that is why, as well, this power of the mind was carried over into, into this unity movement. So when you look at it, to be very honest with you, you have a, a conglomerate of um, transcendental philosophy, uh, spiritism, uh, uh, new Thought Movement, uh, Hinduism, and Yoga. All of these are now combined with Christianity to form something called the Christian, uh, the Unity School of, of Christianity. That, Nathan, is in essence how you begin to understand their teachings and their doctrines. And uh, as we as we get enough time to look at the doctrines specifically, you see how they have distorted uh, biblical truth by allegorizing and spiritualizing the Bible rather than interpreting it uh, uh, historically and grammatically and literally. And this has um, created great confusion to some, uh, to some people. Sounds like they went to a buffet or a cafeteria, picked and <laughs> choose what they wanted in their religion and assembled it. Yeah, that is why though, I think it's good to know the origin. And the, the problem with this is that people uh, accept religions and they're not prepared to go into the history of the religion to understand the founders. It's the same thing with the Mormons. Uh, a lot of Mormon people don't understand the background to Joseph Smith. Uh, a lot of people don't understand the, the, uh, the joke, don't understand the background to Russell and the fact that he perjured himself even in the law court saying that he knew Greek when he didn't know Greek. I mean, all of this would tell you that you've got a person that is not credible. But um, when you get locked into a system and you begin to believe it, uh, it's very, very, very hard to look at it objectively. And so you continue in it even though uh, it is so contrary to Scripture. Pastor, how in the world do you account for this unity Christian Unity uh, School. How do you... It's just a composite. It's just a hodgepodge. Yeah. And it started with this husband and wife, but now there's many, many followers, uh, over a million followers. Yeah. That's How, like... that's like uh, I ask myself the same question, uh, for example, Mormonism. How could people believe what the Mormons believe? And, 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 and living in a Christian country and having an open Bible... How do you how do you do you, how do you explain that? I mean, it's very very difficult uh, to understand that. Um, but there are several reasons I think that would explain why this Gnostic um, uh, mind science cult basically is so <coughs> became so popular. One of the things is that they use a lot of advertising and um, use a printing page and uh, the media and television, and you never would suspect when you hear it and see the advertising. That is not Christianity. 
And I think that is where it, it's, they don't give you the background, how it was started, that kind of stuff. And I think that, uh, and, and by the way, it's quality stuff. I mean, it's not shoddy advertising. This is professional thing that is done. The other thing is that they uh, ream out tons of printed matter uh, every year off their press. For example, they do a lot of publications. They've got uh, Sunday, uh, Sunday School Quarterlies. They publish something called We Wisdom for Children, Good Business for Men, uh, The Weekly Unity, which is a devotional uh, magazine. They also publish newspapers and pamphlets and uh, numerous books. This, the, uh, they publish something called Unity and Daily Word. That's the Daily Bread. They've got one called the Daily Word, like devotional, etc. Uh, and they are they are known as America's largest mail order religion. Wow! Yeah, they target specifically and use direct mail a lot of a lot of cases. I think that's one reason: slick advertising and constant uh, fancy magazines, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, meeting different levels: the children, the adults, the business people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The second thing I think, Nathan, is is probably the most inoffensive cult out there. Here's what I mean by that. The adherence to Unity School of Christianity could remain in any church. You don't have to leave your church. See, And uh, so they can be, you can be in a Baptist church, a Methodist church, you don't have to leave your church, but you, you can subscribe to their magazines and uh, believe in the Unity and, and be, be indoctrinated in their teaching without you feeling that you have to leave that to become to belong to Unity Church. So that's why it's, it's very inoffensive. It really accommodates any religion at all, any belief system at all, as long as you are part of uh, Unity on, on their the mailing list and you're keeping intact in, in with them. The other thing is that it really teaches very subtly that uh, there are a higher level of, of Christianity, a higher consciousness of Christianity. And I'll explain that a little bit later. For example, they, they would say that it's okay for you to read the Bible, but if you want to go deeper and get more intimate with God, uh, you need to go outside the Bible. See, So it, it, it's not denying that the Bible is not valuable, but it only takes you so far. And we, unity, and our doctrines can take it to a higher level. So it's a higher level of Christianity. So it's not saying it's not Christianity. So I think because of that inoffensive nature of it, I think it helps to explain why people are following it. The other thing is, I think the eclectic form that it is, you mentioned a hodgepodge. Some people like that because today people are pluralistic in the terms of religion. They don't think that Christianity alone is exclusively true, true religion. The mindset today is a pluralistic religious world where there's many different religions, but one God. It's just that we worship God. That is the mindset. And unity falls in line with that because it draws from mind science. It draws from yoga. It draws from uh, Hinduism. It draws from spiritism. It draws from new thought. It draws from Christianity. It draws from Gnosticism. And it also draws from the higher consciousness movement that is so popular in all of these New Age movements. So you can see that the age... It's a religion for the age in which we are living that which doesn't want an exclusive religion of Christianity. And I think because of that eclectic approach to, to religion, I think that people find it attract, attractive. The other thing is this, I think it offers what you call a lot of material benefits. It tells you that you can, through your mind, heal your body. So it promises you health, it promises you happiness and, and peace, and it promises you as well that you can have financial security. It's all about the mind. But uh, doesn't it just take uh, some difficult storms of life to 
open people's eyes that that's all made up? You know, it's the same thing I asked about the Word of Faith movement, that all of these guys that are popular in the Way of Food movement, they've got Mercedes-Benz, they've got uh, Rolls-Royce, they've got two and three, they've got three and four uh, planes, they've got million-dollar houses. The ordinary man going to the church is struggling to survive, and I can't figure out up to now. Why in the world would I be deceived by a religion like that? And, uh, so it's a puzzle, and I think that there's a there's something called judicial blindness, and I think this is what has happened. People have turned away from the truth, and I think God, in some way, has kept the scales on people's eyes because there's no other explanation why people follow a man like Copeland, yeah. Kenneth Copeland, or even Benny Hinn. I mean, Benny Hinn himself has said that he was virtually a heretic. He's come out now and said that he realized he was wrong. My problem with Benny Hand is simply simple. If you were a heretic all this time, you'd teach people wrong. Give them back all the money you took from them. That that proves to me that you're really repentant, right? But I, I, I can't explain it. I, there's no human explanation for it other than the Bible said in the last days, uh, Palestine would come. It said there'll be doctrine of demons and they'll become very popular. Men would have itching ears, not willing to listen to the truth. I think that we in that period of apostasy, and I help that he- explain, etc. The other thing is uh, that they put a lot of emphasis on vegetarianism. And this is a very popular thing today. I don't have to tell you right across the board. As a matter of fact, in Missouri, in Lee's Summit, uh, they have a large vegetarian cafeteria that I am told that there's no equal, either for variety or quality, it is that uh, that good. And I think that this uh, health consciousness thing of nature, they blend that with it as well, is another, another appeal uh, to, the, to the movement. And I think the last thing I would say, uh, Nathan, about it, one of the most popular teachings today that is almost in every new form of religion is reincarnation. It's very, very popular. All the New Age movements... Uh, groups basically are teaching reincarnation. Rastas teach reincarnation as well. Uh, it's very, very popular. Uh, their form of reincarnation is westernized. In the eastern form of reincarnation, which is called transmigration of the soul, when you die, you can be you're reborn. But in the Hindu way of thinking, you can be reborn as a rat, or you can be born as a calf or an element or a dog or something, depending on how how you live in your karma. However, unity teaches that you are when you die, you are going to be reborn. It's the same reincarnation, but you're going to be reborn as a man. So it's now appealing to the Western way of thinking. We, we repulse of the idea of being born a rat or a dog or something, right. but to say that I'm reborn as a man now. To try again. I'll get, right, to try. So what happens? You keep going through these cycles of karma until finally you reach perfection. There's no such as resurrection, by the way. There's no such thing as judgment. When you reach perfection, you are meshed back in with this higher consciousness thing. See, But you can see the appeal of that, how it falls in line with the modern way of thinking. They don't want a Christ who died. As a matter of fact, when we look at what they believe about the uh, atonement and the salvation and, and, and so on, they call that paganism, that uh, a man would die and shed his blood. To them, that is that belonged to the, the pagan concept of God who we have offended and is so angry with us, he demands our death. But they find it so very easy to, to believe that we can go through this karma. And so if you live right, you come back as a better man. If you live bad, you come as a worse man. But you go through this cycle, but eventually... Everybody's going to be redeemed. Everybody's going back to this higher consciousness. It is all of these factors blended together that has made it attractive to the modern way of thinking. And that, I think, explains why a couple 
uh, can start a little something in their home and has now moved to 1.5 million people who are embracing this, 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 teaching, this teaching. Do you know, you mentioned vegetarian. Do you have to be a vegetarian to be a follower, or you can pick and choose which of their beliefs you want to follow? How does that work? No, it's not a necessity, okay. but it is pushed. Um, again, I don't know if you noticed, that's one of the attractions, for example, of uh, even the Seventh-day Seventh Adventist movement yeah. here in Antigua. I mean, that they, they push this vegetarian thing. As a matter of fact, it's becoming very, very common in, uh, in many circles. Uh, so I, I don't think it's just restricted to that, but it, it's actually falling in line with the trend, the general trend that we have today. Pastor, in the last 30 seconds, is there one way to heaven? And if so, how do you know that there's only one way? Well, I know there's only one way because our Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I mean, that, that, that there's no dispute, uh, no question, that there's no fogginess about what you're saying. Uh, you come through his door. He's the one door. He's the one shepherd. He's the one God. And, and he's the one Savior. Thank you for listening to this episode of That's Truth. Be sure you join us next Tuesday, Lord willing, when we will be discussing in detail the doctrines of this cult and what they believe and comparing it to scripture, since that is our reference point. Have a safe and blessed night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.